Hello and welcome back to Disability Movement Etc., a podcast that talks about disability and movement as in athletes, but also disability and movement as in activists. I'm here with my co-host, Andy. Andy, what have you been up to this week? Oh, too many things uh, this week. You know, just the standards coming to the end of the semester. So things are getting quite busy with grades and stuff. But, you know, you got a break coming up next week, which is nice. So hopefully trying to rest. But what's up with you? Uh, yeah. So in the last since we last spoke, I have on the podcast, I have finished my um, my first full draft of my uh, of my MFA. Yes. Snaps for John. Hallelujah. And before I sound too uh, elitist, I have just been, um, I've been writing a bunch of articles. I have been doing um, stuff around the house. I uh, really need to organize the office that I'm sitting in. We're not a video podcast, but thankfully the only organized thing is the arts on uh, the art on the walls. So, yeah. um, yeah, just trying to, and trying to build routine. I mean, I don't, I don't think I've said this before, but I, uh, I moved cities, I bought a house. So there's just a lot of, um, there's just a lot of, uh, just haven't, I mean, that happened in like the summer, but I haven't been able to set routines in kind of the way that I'd like, but, um, yeah, not I sure get the that. world needs another white dude complaining about how life, how, how, you know, his productivity routines he'd like to get into aren't quite yet possible, but yet that uh-huh. is where I am. Yeah, no, I get it. We sort of that time of year though, right? Where we, we kind of start reflecting on what's happened over the past year. And I got to say, there's definitely been a whole lot of stuff this year. And it's like, it's no wonder I'm tired. <laughs> and Yeah, for sure. And, and two, I'm, I'm excited that uh, next month, I'm going to be going out to San Francisco and visiting the Paul K. Longmore Institute of Disability and working with them and hopefully talking to some activists and organizers and some organizations out there that work in disability sport recreation. So that's going to be a lot of fun. And well, so what kind of work are you? What kind of work are you doing there at, at the Longmore? Yeah. So they. One of the things that really drew me to them was. They're situating themselves as like scholar activists and and really focusing on research and service work that gives back to the communities that we're working with. I think too often in academia, researchers parachute in and do whatever we do. And then we end up leaving when the study's over, the grant funds are up and it kind of leaves communities in the lurch, especially if you have a you know program that might work or if you're working with a marginalized group that... Uh, is somehow otherwise disadvantaged. And over the last couple of years, I've really been focusing on that part of my scholarship and trying to be more of an advocate as I do my research work. And so really cool, my, my university offers these like create, that's the acronym it used. I don't remember what it's called or what it all the whole thing stands for, but it it gives funds for junior faculty like myself to go and visit other places to kind of build this collaboration. So I, I used that and submitted it a couple of months ago and it came through maybe two weeks ago that the funding is there. So now I actually get to be able to go out and do this. So 
when I'm there, I'll be kind of observing uh, the Institute. I'll be working kind of with their director. And they have a couple of events that are going on uh, while I'll be there that, that bring in some kind of major players in like the independent living movements uh, and, and rights and organizations out there. And there's a few others that I can't think of at the moment, but should be fun. And then hopefully bring some of that information back and apply it here in the DFW area. So today we're going to have you and I, we're going to be talking about some things, some, some topics that have come up. We'll follow up with some things we chatted about last week, particularly some political things, even though we're not at all a political podcast, I would say. Fun enough, thanks to all those listeners out there, we were top 100 of the indie news charts this last week. So, we, we still got a long way to get onto the, you know, non-indie charts. There you go. Up, onward and upward. Yeah. And, but we got somebody to interview this week. And so, we're going to get to that. But let's jump into some of the stuff we want to talk about. For today's podcast, I spoke to Dom Kelly, who's a, a political organizer in Georgia. Uh, recently announced that he's starting a nonprofit and previously worked on a number of campaigns, including Stacey Abrams' ultimately unsuccessful run for the governorship of Georgia. So excited to, for you to hear that conversation, because while we may not be a political podcast, I think other than, you know, I think as we've said before, existence being political, there is also the sense that disability, whether it's John, uh, the campaign of John Fetterman, or um, I was listening to the uh, uh, one of the Crooked Media podcasts, mm-hmm. uh, the team that makes Pod Save America, and uh, I, I like the podcast generally. But my goodness, was is there a lot of ableist language that gets thrown around? And my yeah. goodness, was there a lot of uh, revisionist conversation around the media, conversation around Fetterman in in their minds, and so. Certainly excited to, to speak to a, a disabled organizer who, who is in it, who is, who is doing the work and uh, to connect to our little movement piece, um, moving things forward for um, disabled people in the South. Uh, but you kind of touched on it a little bit, so we might as well get into it because you talked about the Fetterman piece and the revisionism that's going on around there. And I caught a bit of that too. Over this last week, one particular instance being the sort of re-describing of his present disabilities as temporary. And this is certainly, you know, it's not a uh, indication of his fitness to serve. And it's just kind of one of those things where... You always struggle as a liberal progressive person because, yeah, we're fighting for these things. But then you realize, oh, there's some really bad language we're talking about here. It's just really deep rooted in there. Well, and and look at the words that are being, I mean, Trump, we're we're recording this on November 16th as part of the podcast. You know, Trump just announced that he's running again. And I mean, if, if you wanted a... If you wanted a list of sanest words or things that would be against the, the mad community, you could just do a Twitter search for any of the coverage around Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. the, the sort of political punditry of deranged, crazy, that, 
uh, going down the line. And it's that same old thing. Uh, you know, have, have we learned nothing of the fact that Trump won't see your posts about using these ableist words, but your friends who aren't sure whether they can confide in you that they are experiencing these things or even that they do self-identify as mad, are, are you opening the door? And, and, you know, royal you, obviously, not you, Andy. For sure. <laughs> you know, there, there's just a complete lack among the, I would call it the political punditry class and media to acknowledge the words that they use. Because it's very, I mean, I get it. It's it's easy to call the some of the Republican candidates that ultimate, most of whom ultimately failed um, to call them these things. But but yet that gets away from policy, which uh, ostensibly is what political punditry is supposed to point out. Oh, yeah. And, and, and I think that when when that revisionism comes around and we say, well, can we be quiet now about the media narrative affecting the voting? Like it did. Only in the U.S. is a like uh, I don't want to I don't have the Fetterman number off the top of my head, admittedly. But, you know, only in the U.S. is four percent a landslide. Mm hmm. So like, yeah, yeah. Look, if you look at five thirty eight's chart, and maybe we can provide a link in the in the uh, in the podcast description, there's a giant spark to spike towards the middle. Now, of course, it coincides as we get closer, the votes get closer, the polling gets somewhat more accurate, according to some. You know, whatever polls tend to trend that way in the American divide when it when it gets closer to election day. But you can you can see a spike between the poll before the thing and the poll after. Oh, sure. The exit polls told a different story, but this is after people have voted. Um, mm -hmm. I wish we would look at that bias within within disability and and, and of political punditry and, and understand that our ableism goes deeper than than what the polls say and, and what we oh, believe. Sure. I remember back to the whole incident with the stairs and the former president who shall not be named and oh, his the whole ramp thing, you know, in which people criticized him for like walking down a ramp and, you know, a, I don't even know what, you know, a slower fashion, right? Took his time, looked like somebody, an elderly individual, which and the dude's like 70 something, like walking down a slick ramp because it was raining. But yet we... And I say we, including like liberal progressives, then point that out and start making fun of that. And it's like, yeah, I don't like the guy either, but do we really have to make fun of the fact he can or cannot walk downstairs? And I get the idea of some people trying to do that because he tries to portray this form of masculinity, right, in which uh, doesn't involve being disabled or doing any type of movement that looks anything but strong and fully abled. And it's like, that's, I mean, it's such a cheap shot. It's like, it doesn't even help anything. And then on top of it, it doesn't really get to the matter. That's the real issue, which is this really bad policies. And I think now that Fetterman's won, which is a great victory, and I think they ran a, a great campaign, like just because he had a stroke and has some remaining disabilities, whether they go away or not, does not limit his fittedness 
to actually be a senator. And like, yeah, to 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 assume such a thing, it I mean that just it makes it really clear who you think is competent when you start saying stuff like that. And people recognize it. So Yeah. I mean I saw uh and admittedly, it was only sort of one social media conversation. But, you know, this narrative shows up every once in a while. And I understand where the narrative comes from around, you know, long-term senators. Um, this conversation on social media happened to be around Diane Feinstein, who uh, has, I'm just looking at the information here, has been a senator since 1992 and is 89. Yeah. You know, you, you can cover that fact with care or you can do what some political reporters have decided to do or some political people having conversations about politics, not just media people, about like, oh, I asked her this thing and she contradicted what her aide said. And it was like, okay, if I'm 89 and still in political office, I think maybe I wouldn't be a huge fan of being shouted out down the hallway and being asked to give a com- I don't know if that was the specific thing of this particular reporter, but that was conversations about Fetterman. There were like tweets about, you know, um, how is he going to handle questions in the hallway? And it's like, well, g- you're going to have to figure that out. And it's actually on you to figure that out, not on Fetterman to figure that out. Like, he has to figure it out from a comms perspective. But as a uh, as somebody engaged in this work, you actually have to figure out, you know, the, uh, the same thing as if um, if one of the wheelchair-using members of, I was about to say members of Parliament, you're all Canadian, I am, members on Capitol Hill, you know, the door not being open is not, that, or sorry, the, a doorway not being most successful is not, is not the disabled senator's problem, actually. It's the Capitol's problem. You know, it gets to that shift of of personal responsibility and how we view disability and access. And it's even more infuriating when you realize that, like, it's not being followed by people who are in the political power in the country. It's like, if anybody should understand it, it should be the people who espouse, like you said, to these, to the highest good, I guess. And and that just uh, that ain't currently happening. No. And you you bring up two things for me. The first one being the idea of access and who who is responsible for that. And too often, I think we look at, particularly in America, but I, I'd say <laughs> generalizing very broad, with a very broad brush, that most of Western industrialized societies, they put the onus on the person, right? The, and which comes from that very medical model of disability in that it is an individual's impairments that might define them or their disability. And in order to create a better existence for that person, well, they're responsible for, for fixing or curing or correcting that. Or in most cases, particularly with physical accessibility, even though in the U.S. we have the ADA and things like the Rehabilitation Act and IDEA that are supposed to make things accessible, but it's up to the person to request those things instead of looking at going, oh, we're an organization that provides services to a wide variety of people. We probably should be accessible for that. 
But instead, we make it for what we know, which most of us is able-bodied individuals, non-disabled individuals primarily. And we make everything and we just go, yeah, we'll, we'll make it to the, the middle, the norm. And it's like, well, that's, that's not how accessibility should work. That's, that's not how inclusion should work. And when people throw around those words <laughs> and then, and then there's an issue where of accessibility, it's like, well, how, how inclusive really are you? Yeah. And I think when we get to, uh, to jump off what you're saying, when we get to that, when we put the personal responsibility, we also lose the ability for groups of disabled people to talk to each other. So, for example, there are certain ways, uh, uh, as a British Canadian, I understand that there are massive fault lines within the ADA. Mm -hmm. I also understand that most of Canada, the Accessible Canada app is fairly toothless. And um, some things closer to the ADA, uh, in which they basically just stole the name. Um, the uh, uh, I think it's the AOD ADA. It's the Ontario Disability okay. uh, Act, essentially Act for Ontarians with Disabilities and Access, or something. But with the AODA and, and these things, like it, we get lost in conversation because you'll end up with a Canadian talking to an American, an American will say the ADA is so bad. And then the Canadian will go, well, look what we've got. We've got a human rights framework where it takes three years to get anything done. And it never actually gets done. And so we end up piecemealing it or very rarely bringing court challenges when it comes into contact with other things that don't fall under the, the human rights framework, like say employment law or something. And then you lose, you lose the ability to talk about how access in what you were talking about San Francisco, you know, like access in San Francisco is different conversations than in Texas. And oh, sure. Conversations Absolutely. in Austin are different from conversations in, I'm just going to pick another Texas town that I know, Lubbock, who knows? Yeah. yeah. A Let's wildly just pick different. Texas yeah. For no yeah. apparent reason. But yeah. We lose that ability when we bring it to personal responsibility. And then it makes organizing, talking about movements. I think much more difficult because it becomes about personal context. And there's also the danger that an organization, a well-meaning organization or a program tries to bring forward what worked in one place without understanding the social context of the other. You brought forward the independent move, living movement. There's a reason that there is an independent living um, center dedicated to rural America. There's a reason that exists. I'm not putting words in their mouth, but there are fundamental, uh, this isn't news to anybody, there are fundamental differences between what rural, uh, it doesn't matter if it's America, yeah. what a rural area needs oh, yeah. versus what an urban area needs. And that's a true sure. disability, but we often see these sort of, uh, these movements that presume to know or presume to know because they come from more left-leaning spaces. This is not unique to disability, but there's like, well, it worked here, so of course it will work. It worked in New York, so of course it will work in Texas, and um, some tenants of that do. But but I think yeah. when, when we put that personal responsibility on, we forget the we forget the power of group organizing. Oh sure, yeah, I think the unionizations, labor movements, disability movements, any civil movements, I think are intrinsically connected right? and deeply. Um, but we don't often recognize it. And even within those spaces, we maintain uh, any type of 
built-in systemic oppression that exists in the broader society unless we're very intentional about counteracting whatever those oppressions might be, right? But most people don't recognize it. I mean, it's a, all of for all of the marches that have happened around the women's movement, be, uh, Black Lives Matter, I could see countless disabled folks who were like, I'd love to be a part of this, but I can't come to your march for name and accessibility reason, right? I can't come to your, I can't come to your speaker because there's not a sign language interpreter. There's not, I don't know if you can hear Artemis in the background. Artemis. I, I heard you, you closed the door. Somebody closed the door accidentally. She closed the door on herself, keeping her out of the room from where my wife is at. So she's just sitting there whining. Anyway. All good. You were, you were saying to the second point of earlier. Damn ADHD mind. <laughs> what were we talking about? We were talking about uh, the faults of personal responsibility and then you're talking yes. about labor movements and yes, how I certainly wish they would get with the program. Um, yeah. And then the earlier, I guess the earlier second point is probably about uh, uh, how we, how we approach political figures, if I had to guess. Ah, yes. That's what it was. We got it. Yeah. The, um, the thing that comes up for me is so, and maybe this is a product of modern times and maybe going back to JFK, right? That a lot of people voted for him because he was charismatic. And a lot of discussion around presidents is how charismatic are they? How enthusiastic? How authentic are they? And at some point, we decided that it's really important for people to be able to answer questions like on the fly, off the cuff. Like that's the pinnacle of being a good politician or being a good orator is if you can just respond to a question on the spot, make a clear, coherent answer. But I don't think that's, I mean, I don't think that's really a great thing or something we should aspire to have because I want my leaders to put some thought into what they say. I don't want them to just respond right off the cuff and whatever comes to mind, because that's, that's where we start to get into the world of having canned responses, right? Or a senator who's running from like meeting to meeting to meeting, no matter what age they are, gets thrown a question in the five and a half seconds they're going from one meeting to the next meeting. And yeah, they might have a gaffe or they might misspeak. And it's like, I don't think that's a part of their fittedness for the job. Because yeah, I, if you ask me something in between a meeting that I just got out of that, who knows what the hell they're talking about. It could be like some really boring bill on farm infrastructure, or it could be like national security. <laughs> it's like they're going from one to the other back and forth. They don't have the time. And you just toss a question at them. And, and if they misspeak, then we lambast them. And I think that in and of itself is a very ableist process because any, any person, well, I don't want to say any person, but someone with a disability, even I'll take myself as an example with ADHD, is that if you throw a question at me and my mind is somewhere else, I'm probably not going to be asking or responding in the most eloquent fashion. It might be a short, quick response. It might be like, I'll just give you a blank stare and keep going. 
or I might have to ask you to repeat the question. And so I don't, I don't know how to fix that. And I, I mean, this is just griping coming from somebody who doesn't do it. But I, I think, I think one of the, and this will bring us to our, our second point of the day that you wanted to bring up around NCAA and athletes. Like I think about this when I'm covering parasport is one of the, and I don't pat myself on the back for this. Please come and do more parasport reporting, disabled reporters. And do it equitably. Don't parachute in. But if you ask the average Paralympian, they've gotten about half an hour to 45 minutes of media training. Oh, sure. It's heavily curated by PR teams that are are trained to a certain message of, of disability sport the vast majority of the time, especially when you get into Paralympic cycles and stuff. You know, I think a lot about how little the other person, like I've been in media... I've been in some form of media for a, a decade, if we count student media. And um, I don't think enough people, even if they're just asking questions of their, you know, they don't have to be part of the media, asking questions of their, um, of their elected officials, or in this case, athletes, understand what's happening behind the scenes. I mean, uh, to bring up, you know, crooked media and pod save America and things. One of the things that becomes abundantly clear when you when you listen to them, because, you know, they were they were comms people for Obama, uh, the vast majority um, of, of the main people that people recognize anyway, of that podcasting team, that just how curated those conversations are and just how much thought goes into them. Um, and we can't expect that out of every response. And exactly. It's. It is ableist in a way to to expect the most thoughtful, um, the most uh, oratory based response. I mean, this is, you know, we talked earlier on in another episode of the podcast about how intellectually disabled and cognitively disabled folks get left behind. And this is the core of it. It's that, oh, they don't sound like I expect them to sound. So moving on. and. You know, I find it especially galling, should we say, when at this point, you know, I have not researched this, but let's take a conservative estimate and say 30% of the House and Senate have had COVID. Yeah, sure. And then let's be conservative with that again and say 25% of that um, have long COVID. And yet we're still we're still hung up on whether somebody can answer a question in the hallway. I don't, I don't quite, I don't quite connect there. Well, yeah, you layer on, you layer on top of that, that at least again, I can't, I can't say anything for the Canadian politic, at least in America. I know what, I don't know the exact age, but I know they're probably most of the politicians in the house of Republicans or the house of representatives and the Senate are, over the age of 60 and like so they're upwards in age and we know that most individuals over the age of uh, 70 at least half of them have some form of disability whatever that might be probably it could be a visual impairment where they need glasses or some other corrective device it could be hearing right i mean any of us who think of our grandparents who are the same age as diane feinstein I mean, I think there's people even older than she is. And again, not to dismay or say that they are not fully capable, but understanding them in context to go, yeah, 
older folks maybe take a little bit more time or maybe need a little bit more time to respond. Perhaps, and you said conservatively with long COVID, you layer that on top of the fact that a quarter of the U.S. population qualifies for having some form of disability. And so there, there's disability within the Senate. It's there. We just don't acknowledge any of it. I mean, Biden, yeah, exactly, very rarely. And there was a, a little bit that there was a time when I saw a few pieces on it about Biden's stutter and him talking about that and him being the, I mean, he's certainly not the first president with a disability, but the first president to be open about their disability or previous experience with disability. And it was, it was refreshing for a little while, but it seemed to have now faded away and it's no longer a part of those discussions. Speaking of things that hell of a segue in coming, just to warn you, but hard segue. <laughs> Speaking of things that haven't previously been discussed, you wanted to bring forward, Andy, um, some, some disability work happening in the NCAA. Yeah. So I came across... Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Oh, yeah. We'll talk about it. Um, that's what we do. I came across this this week. Uh, NCAA just released their newest guidelines for disability. And... I don't know if they've had one in the past. I know I haven't seen anything in the past, but that doesn't mean it, it wasn't there. It seems to be a good resource. I looked through it. I'm going to say that first. I'm glad that it exists. It seems that it was put together by individuals who have experience. However, here's the but. Going through it, the thing I noticed was really centering a lot of the discussion in a medicalized way and situating it in very much an individualist fashion. We, this is aimed, obviously, for all of the NCAA, and we know that there are not a whole lot of sports for disabled persons, or there's not a lot of, say, physically disabled folks participating on these traditional sports teams. There's the occasion where somebody might, uh, say, have an amputation who is on a, a track team, uh, but very rarely are there any sort of what I guess would be blended, adapted, non-disabled sport, right? There's, there's no wheelchair tennis players playing that I know of. I could be, somebody could certainly point this out and I could be wrong, but there's no, wheelchair tennis players that I know of that compete on an NCAA level with non-wheelchair using tennis players, right? Even though the rules for that exist and the way to accommodate and sort of, I guess, level the playing field as it were, uh, there's ways to go about it, but yet that isn't in the guide. What I notice a lot is in the guide is essentially defining for coaches what disability are, and that if their students or student athletes have a disability, <laughs> basically trying to make sure they are not overtly ableist in regard to responding to those individuals. So, it's kind of a struggle because it, it puts a lot of things in the school setting. So, accommodations where individuals might struggle with 
as they define it, major life activities that include major bodily functions. So things like caring for oneself, uh, sleeping. When I look at these and I, and I hear stories uh, from student athletes where they're going to practice for hours on end, then have to go to classwork, then maybe have study hour. Like if somebody has a disability <laughs> that maybe they do have fatigue, maybe they do have trouble caring for oneself, right? The idea of executive function or just sort of managing all this stuff going on. You know, it's not that they need necessarily an aid 24-7, but I know most of these students are not getting the type of support they would need. And it's no wonder some fall through the cracks and it's no wonder that there's still news stories about athletes on full scholarships still going hungry because they're trying to manage all these things, particularly for the first time. And a lot of it was about language, which of course is important. But then the kind of part that was quite cringe was they brought in this idea of an identity wheel and bringing in how you think about certain identities. So there was something about language and class and gender and orientation and race and religion. And I think that can be helpful. But I look at this through kind of that diversity, inclusion, equity kind of lens that's been going on that's quite popular within the U.S. And it feels like the guide is more of a checkbox than it's actually a, a way for coaches to better understand and better empathize with their disabled athletes. How many? This is my question. I, I haven't been in uh, in and around the NCAA very much, if at all. Maybe we can get a, a disabled reporter who who reports on the NCAA more often to to get that perspective. But if we're expecting coaches to understand things like identity wheels and how they will be, it's not to me that they understand them. That that I I, I certainly trust a, a coach to understand. But what these guys often miss out on is applicability. Like if you're talking to, um, you know, as you were speaking, I was thinking of, you know, um, you know, you always think of the sports you most often want. One of those is football. You know, there are athletes who are going to physiotherapy for the first time to recover from injuries they sustained as a collegiate football player. And so to, in a, you brought up the masculinity before, in a hyper ability sport, in a sport that prides you on, can you push through, blah, 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 blah. Not that parasport doesn't. Parasport does the same thing and is actually much more dangerous for its athletes in a lot of ways. I have huge problems with that. I've witnessed some of that, to be frank. But like an identity wheel doesn't get to the applicability. I, I like, you know, I was looking at this before in the podcast. I like that identity first and person first are separated out. There are some, there are some good things coming from this. Um, I have some questions as to why some, uh, I would like to have seen bios in this press release from the NCAA that gives me a little bit perhaps more comfort about their, um, uh, you know, their relationship to, uh, to disability and access. I don't just mean that I want them all to be disabled. I mean, if I see, as I do here, that I'm sure this professor is wonderful. Uh, when I see somebody involved in a department of rehabilitation, psychology, and special education, 
I do go straight towards this medical model idea. I also have some deep misgivings here about the first page of the, one of the guides jumping straight to the ADA, because yes, people do need to know the legal structure, and yes, the NCAA does rely, um, bent as it is, on um, the NCAA as inequitable as it has been in the past and currently is. You know, there's a reason they fall back on these on these guidelines, and it's an easy thing to point to. But those in disability work, us others, understand that there's and a, a program that follows the ADA to the letter can still fundamentally be inaccessible. And and you know, speaking of a lot of athletes, regardless of para athletes, they're not come to sport. I think it's fair to say. Because they may have the learning disability and, and their one area of excellence, if we're going to put it on that, the one area in which they are perceived to be talented is in sport. Sure. So, yeah. and they, so let's face it, for many people who are athletes and are on scholarship, they're not going to figure out what being disabled means until we get to college. I meet plenty of disabled people who used a wheelchair at age four who only really figured out what disability meant in the social sphere at 22. So the, my response to the guide, and I'd be curious to your, your, you know, your thoughts on this is more please. And also, I would love to see disabled athletes. I did not go through these bios. Many of these people involved me be disabled and disabled athletes. I, I would love to see some thoughts from the people that exist outside of the um, NCAA framework with these para sports that are represented at the collegiate level, whether that's para track and field, and there's a lot of that going around your way at UTA, uh, basketball, um, Steph Wheeler and the like, uh, which is involved under the National Wheelchair Basketball Association. I believe there's some para swimming programs, so I don't know where they're administered under from like an administrative point of view. These things are are complex and, and i think this guide is like we did something it's a and maybe they acknowledge that too i mean there's a, a part in kind of the release statement where they you know they said we hope the guide will contribute to fostering more inclusive environments uh it's meant to create awareness provide tools and skills prioritize access so i think it is that maybe it is that first step and maybe you know there is hopefully more to come from this. But I think you kind of nailed it with your with mentioning that starting with the ADA is probably not the best way to go about this. As I've heard the ADA described, it was a floor. It was never meant to be a ceiling. So if we're starting from the place of here's where we're situating the idea of disability and the idea of accessibility as the ADA, okay, that's the start. That shouldn't be the finish line, right? It shouldn't be the finish line that we just acknowledge or we recognize that certain athletes that have a disability that isn't necessarily associated with a traumatic injury that is of their sport, right? Certainly those athletes, particularly with football, particularly with hockey, particularly with other sports that involve head-on collisions in a repetitive fashion. I mean, we know that increases the risk of CTE. We know that can be 
a condition that comes with immense impairments. And so an athlete sustaining an injury at 22, yeah, they may not ultimately have influence down the road. You know, they may come to the realization they have a disability by the time they're 40 or 50 when it starts impairing things. But if we're not acknowledging all those acts at the beginning and to say, yeah, it's not just that they can access it or not access it, but it's all the other pieces that go into it, right? It's all the intangibles that are really, really hard to define. I know they, they go into great depth about the idea of major life activity and, and major bodily functions. But looking at these lists, there's a lot of things on there that probably most student athletes aren't going to be experiencing. And the ADA wasn't necessarily written to account for persons who, in all intents and purposes, are physically quite capable, right? Even if they have a disability that, that, that may impair some motor movement or, or you know, whatever, they're still have great physical prowess if they're competing at a national, I mean, even a regional level, uh, potentially an international level. And it's, it's, I guess we have to start somewhere and, and maybe the ADA, because it is so widely known and it is, I mean, it, it's an established precedent, but we also know what, what can happen to established precedents if you look at something like Roe v. Wade, but it's, it was never meant to be the end point. And I think what gets me with this is it feels like a lot of other diversity, equity, inclusion things that, and, and not against those things, I think they're very necessary, but it feels like it's, it's the checkbox, it's the end point. It's like, we did this, okay, now we can move on. Now we're inclusive now because we have this language guide. <laughs> and it's, it's never, this is the start, here's how it's going to go forward. And you're right, the people in here, I'm sure, have, have necessary experience. Does it make them the best person? No. Does it mean that they aren't a good advocate and, and have great things to say? Sure. But it would also be nice to know that we're using a diverse set of voices and we're talking to athletes, past and present, who have disabilities and what are their issues, right? If we have somebody who does say have trouble under one of these major life activities like uh, communicating or concentrating or performing manual tasks, like how does that relate to their sport? And how are they experiencing the rest of their college experience? Because right? that's that's sort of the weird interplay here is it's not, we're not just talking about sports, but we're also talking about academics and social life. And it's, it really brings to light how interconnected all these things really are. You know, and I do bring forward coming back to these ADA and in fact, the, the amendments to the ADAs that happened in the two, that happened to the ADA in the, in the 2000s to update it from 1990. And it, it caught my eye within one of these documents where it talks about self-disclosure and accommodations. And this is the perfect example for me where it says, and I am quoting here to sound very academic, all colleges or universities that receive federal funds are recognized or sorry, are required to provide accommodations to students 
with education impacting disabilities, which, by the way, is all disabilities, despite what this may describe, if they would like to access accommodations. However, it is the student's responsibility and or prerogative to approach the college and disclose their disability documentation to the college slash universities. Office of Disability Services and or NCAA Education Impacting Disability Services. Yeah. If this document cared about equity in the way that it states to it, this is not a personal reflection on the people that wrote it, mm-hmm. but in an ideal world where this truly sat within an equitable disability cultural structure, this would say, while it is listed as a requirement, it is also your professional responsibility as coaches to create an inclusive space where somebody can feel safe disclosing to you. Because if you're telling a football coach that has that is the highest paid public employee in the state, that if he doesn't have a piece of paper, he doesn't have to care about it. Uh, hi. <laughs> One of those coaches is now a Republican uh, congressman and or senator, uh, Tuberville. Do we do we believe that some of these people in these positions, while I do believe that they care about athlete welfare, are not going to look at that and go, I don't have capacity for that. Even if it's from an accessibility point of view of like, I do not have the capacity for that. When the paper shows up, I will go by the letter of the law. I will talk to my accessibility person and we will do that. But that doesn't get to, it doesn't get to this disclosure piece at all. And so if you, if the athlete can't disclose to you, if you're suddenly my basketball coach, Andy, and I can't come to you and say, hey, I'm really spastic today as somebody with cerebral palsy, then this conversation doesn't happen. It doesn't matter if they're impacted with sleeping or I'm just picking random ones, bowel obstructions or neurological conditions. You know, I could pick any number of of conditions that a disabled athlete who is competing in the NCAA could have. Crohn's, for example, fits like seven of these, right? We go back to COVID. COVID hits almost all of these or has the capacity to hit all of these. It's certainly neurological. I don't know about normal cell growth. Uh, I don't even, as a disabled person, I'm not even quite sure what they're talking about there. I assume they're talking about cancer. Uh, Yeah, I think so. But But that's a weird way to write it. but, But like, what? Um, and so I don't want to get too granular in before we get to our crips of the week. I don't want to get too granular about like picking a guide apart because there's just there's just so much you could there's so much any guide could could happen regardless of this one. But um, I think it's important for for people listening, and I think there will be some sports listeners to to remember that it's a step forward. It's not it's not done, and in fact, in a number of ways, it isn't started. <laughs> I think these guides will be well well applied at universities that understand disability, whether that's because they have a really strong disability studies program, whether they have a strong history of parasport that goes alongside their their NCAA branded athletics. Where I worry about, just to end this off, and I, of course, you have the floor after, but the, the, where I end off with this is, what about the universities that know absolutely nothing about disability? Because let's face it, there are ones. I mean, there are American universities that will post like student accessibility office job postings and it will say the building is not accessible. You have to be okay with that. Like that is a thing that happens. 
I, I mean, you, you've, you mentioned it already. And I mean, we, yeah, we could spend forever talking about this, but we probably shouldn't. <laughs> but, and I'll, I'll just kind of close with it. It's, it's a compliance document, right? And it, it, it gives people permission to perhaps not engage in the best behavior because they're being compliant, but they're not necessarily being inclusive. And I've said this in many forums. In fact, I said it in a TED talk, but the fact Cut that you, yep, the fact that universities have offices of disability services is an admission of failure to make accessibility the baseline. Right? If you have an office that is meant to be a place where students go to then get a letter to take to their coach or take to their professor or whoever saying legally <laughs> you have to provide these accommodations yet still allow wiggle room for certain faculty, and I'm sure coaches as well, to not give certain accommodations because underlining everything in the ADA is the, in the word reasonable, and reasonableness is wildly subjective and can vary from person to person. I mean, and it ignores the fact that the accessibility, that's, that should be provided regardless. <laughs> Like, it shouldn't matter whether or not a student tells you they need a certain accommodation. We should be providing the accommodations broadly. And it even mentions in here, which I think is, is sort of quite ironic, that it includes universal design in here. But I think this maybe brings, it'll bring up a bigger discussion we can get into some other time. But like, I think universal design, again, is a great starting point and it's a place to begin, but it's certainly not the end. Yet that is how traditionally I think too many of us have looked at it. And Andrew Hammond wrote this in a wonderful paper a few years ago that essentially our institutions are only as inclusive as the people in power are willing to allow. And in most instances, the accommodations that are provided are the ones that A, we already probably do provide, B, fit within our model or of what we expect to be typical, and usually are only given to disabled folks that most readily fit those accommodations or who we deem as deserving of those accommodations. And when we add that to sport, Again, because in sport, I think it undergirds the, this idea of ability, right? Is that when we say, how do we accommodate a sport? And there's a disabled person that comes along. I say, well, I shouldn't have to do this because that changes the sport instead of being, oh, well, we're trying to create this inclusive guideline, which is, I mean, there's the word inclusion everywhere in here. But if, if we're not starting from that, Start if we, if we don't start from the point where accessibility should be there, full stop. If we're not stating that, then we're falling short. And there's it's always going to put the extra onus on the disabled person to have to ask. It's going to force them to basically 
either ask for help, ask for something different, ask for something that their peers don't have to ask for. And most of us, we don't, I mean, most of us, even though we sort of fight back against this idea, ideology of individualism, I think most of us do get self-satisfaction from doing things ourselves. And for some of us, particularly Midwesterners, we get a great amount of satisfaction from doing things ourselves the hard way without asking for help. That when you then say, well, you have this disability and the only way you can access something is by asking. <laughs> and that person, they could say no. And then that totally changes your dynamic. And when we think about coaches, like imagine a player going and saying, I need this accommodation and the coach just saying no. Well, now that has changed that entire dynamic between that athlete, the coach, the other teammates. And I mean, it's, you can't go backwards. Yeah, it, it makes me wonder, and, and I'll, I'll cut us off, otherwise, you know, we could go on forever uh, before we get to the crib of the week. Like, it, it does make me wonder on the, the limitations of UDL as a framework when it comes to sport. Like I, I'm, I'm not entirely convinced. Well, first of all, most, most, learning, most learning strategies we profess about in academia or get professed about in academia don't tend to translate into the sport arena from a purely pedagogical point of view. So am I entirely convinced that a UDL framework is applicable at the NCAA level? I'm going to be honest as a former para-sport athlete. I'm actually not um, because sport is so... Not that the classroom isn't context-dependent, but it is so context dependent that that you know, like for example, a, UD, a, a typical conversation about UDL is a conversation about you're in a classroom and you're trying to create, you know, you're trying to create universal design or a design in your syllabus or your whatever god-awful um, electronic system the University of North Texas uses for you to use Moodle or whatever the heck these other systems are. That's where the conversation stops. It doesn't often talk about... Sometimes we'll get UDL talked about in terms of like outdoor ed and stuff, more experiential learning. But like a uni universal design framework for like a board session for a football coach or like a walkthrough in a football stadium. Like I think we're talking about radically different things that the UDL framework doesn't... And I, I don't think we can framework ourselves out of oppression either. Definitely not. I saw, I saw a video today about the difference between ableism and disabledism. And I was like, uh huh. Mostly because disabledism is more used in British circles anyway, okay. in my experience. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's basically splits. Sometimes they're used as synonyms often in conversation, but the difference being ableism being more of like uh, uh, I'll send you the video and you can decide if you want to cut this but ableism being being more of a societal and then disabledism being more of the discriminatory piece of ableism like mm. Mm -hmm. we can split we can split yeah. thing, uh, uh, in any way that we want to and, and I'm just not convinced it's not that the universal design framework can't be applied it's that I don't think it is thought of 
in that way yet. And that needs more than a paragraph. Oh, sure. <laughs> Quite frankly. Yeah. To be able to implement in any, in any real way. It's the, I think the issue of progressive people who are well-meaning and well-intentioned to try to be as inclusive as possible. And we create these very, I don't know, standardized checklists of things to do, ways to be inclusive in order to help others without acknowledging that much of the disabling part of disability is the societal views of disability itself to begin with. And no matter what we do, and <laughs> I mean, we could, again, meet all the requirements under UDL. We could meet all the requirements under the ADA. We could meet every requirement possible that is written in every law, and it still not be enough, and it still not be accessible. Because all of that occurs within the society that is already disadvantaging disabled bodies. Yeah, our society is already ableist. All right, welcome back to Disability Movement Etc. I'm one of our hosts, John Lepke, and I'm here today with Dom Kelly. Hi, Dom. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for thanks for appearing. So you've been involved with uh, disability organizing for a long time. Uh, you just wrapped up work with Stacey Abrams, Georgia uh, gubernatorial campaign. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got into sort of the disability movement or, or political space? Sure. Um, I I always say I've been an advocate since I was four years old, um, where I was literally uh, dropped into advocacy. Um, my 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 mom. Uh, my, I'm a triplet, uh, and the three of us the three of us have CP. And when we were four my mom decided that we should tell our own story instead of people telling our story for us. So she literally put us in front of a room full of high schoolers and said, uh, okay, time to, time to tell them your story and who you are. And, uh, and that just led to, that just led to a career in advocacy, uh, that really started with just being a kid and talking to older kids about, uh, CP and, um, and what it was and why we were proud to be disabled. And I had a career in music for uh, a number of years. And in that music career, because of that music career, started to get involved politically, um, started to uh, do activist work on the side and volunteer and show up at protests and organize. And I had some jobs in between and work that I was doing that didn't quite feel so fulfilling and um, realized eventually that I wanted to be, I wanted to work in politics and movement um, and that that was what I was called to do and that I could, I could find a, a way to bring uh, disability justice work into more of a mainstream political um, platform and was lucky enough to start working for Stacey's voting rights organization called Fair Fight Action, um, where I helped lead fundraising and also advised on our disability work, um, which included we were spent quite a while advocating for voting rights legislation um, 
we worked on GOTV during the 2020 election. And and I also uh, was a, being get out the vote, get out the vote. Exactly. Yeah. And then was able to put together a, a council of uh, disabled advocates and policy experts from around the country and launched that council um, before I was asked to help uh, Stacey launch her gubernatorial campaign and then was senior advisor on the campaign for disability and formed, created our disability engagement accessibility department. And that, that, that's where I ended up as of last week. <laughs> yeah. You know, you've done a lot of work in fundraising. And one of the things I wanted to ask you uh, today was, you know, we see a lot of it's that meme of five people around the tables passing the same five dollars around around disability community. I mean, it, it identifies with other marginalized communities as well. How did your understanding of disability community inform or how does it inform now your approach to fundraising? That's a really good question. Um, you know, I think. It is. I have found it difficult to. I have found it difficult to get funders to understand disability work from a movement perspective, and instead of from a uh, you know foundation perspective. And what I mean by that is you know a, a typical sort of like ex disability foundation where they're more um, doing research for a cure or they're raising awareness instead of uh, doing movement work and justice work and activist work in the disability space. And that that has been difficult. Um, I have found to to get kind of typical funders to to want to to invest in that work. I think what I've learned from being involved in our deeply in our community is that um, while while we may be passing the same $5 around um, that there is value in what we can bring. Oftentimes that's not giving large sums of money to, to activists and, and organizations, but it's amplifying those organizations, um, bringing them to the forefront and getting, getting other people's eyes on it who may be willing to learn about what the work is and invest I think what I've learned is that we have, as a community, so many, so many devoted advocates and so many, so many people who crave community that when the, the, the second there's something to, to amplify, you know, we, we jump on it and we amplify and, and that like kind of grassroots approach to fundraising can be really successful, even if we're not the ones donating, but we're the ones helping, helping amplify. And then I think my hope is that we can continue to get buy-in from those people who don't historically invest in the, this kind of work that they can understand why the, the, you know, this movement side of disability is just as, if not more important than some of the others. You know, you mentioned that a lot of organizations and people that, that you want to uplift in this work. Who are some of those organizations? The Disability Justice Initiative at the Center for American Progress is... A, a policy, you know, think tank, and they do really incredible work. Rebecca Coakley founded the Disability Justice Initiative, and I think they kind of were a trailblazer. Um, and it was not that long ago um, in this sort of like bringing disability justice into the mainstream of like left leaning politics um, and advocacy. So that 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 was a huge 
that was a really huge step. So Disability Justice Initiative is now led by Mia Ives Rubley, and they do really great work. Detroit Disability Power is an organization out of Detroit, Michigan, and they do really fantastic C3 nonpartisan advocacy work. They wrote a uh, get out the vote, disability get out the vote uh, guide. The the only one I've seen about how to run an accessible campaign, one that some friends of some friends of mine helped write and was actually uh, Jules Good, who runs Neighborhood Access, um, helped helped write that playbook. And I was able to bring them on to uh, to the Abrams campaign as my deputy director for disability engagement um, team near the end when we did our own get out the vote. When we did it, when we did our own get out the vote program for the disability community um, in October. So Detroit Disability Power is great, and gosh, there's so many. Uh, yeah, yeah, there's so many. But th- those are the first two that come to mind: DJI at Cap, and then uh, Detroit Disability Power. Yeah. What do you think? You know, I've I've written a little bit about this. I've chatted with a few folks about it, but what do you think? As somebody who's, you know, I'll I'll call you a veteran in this space of, of disability political organizing. I don't know about that, but <laughs> <laughs> a veteran, at least in terms of, uh, of of public facing. What do you think stops disabled people from moving into positions like yours or taking very, very, very public and very supportive stances within campaigns like like Stacy's? What do you think stops disabled people from from connecting with those? positions and moving those missions forward inaccessibility and ableism i actually wound up a couple a couple of years ago i decided i was bored i wasn't really bored but i just i was like i need another project to work on and uh and i put together a survey to i wanted to see who were folks who were working in progressive organizations on political campaigns or who wanted to or attempted to work on those campaigns and in those organizations to see what their experience was um, around accessibility, ableism, um, and how that impacted their willingness to continue to work in this sector. And I surveyed 111 uh, people using Twitter, um, asked a couple of like influencer friends to get the word out, and found that the vast majority of those people had faced some some there was some way that the campaign of the organization, um, the culture of it, or the actual like working environment, um, the physical working environment, one of those areas was inaccessible to them. And that either the candidate or the principal for the organization or the organization itself had used ableist language, for instance, or, or had perpetuated ableism in some way that was noticeable that had held those people back from being able and willing to be a part of that work. Um, and it was the, it was, I don't have the exact stats in front of me, but like 85 to 95% had those experiences somewhere in that gap, depending on the, the situation. And it was not surprising at all, but it was, it was really eye-opening. And what it showed me was that the progressive movement, whether it's political or not, was really lacking um, in how they thought about disability and accessibility. And to the point where 
one of two of the questions I asked one was, does, does this experience, does your experience with ableism or perceived ableism um, impact your willingness to donate to an organization? And then does it, regardless of party affiliation, does it impact your willingness to vote for that candidate? And overwhelmingly, people said yes, um, that even if they were a Democrat, for instance, they they would be hesitant to vote for that candidate if they felt they were being excluded in some way. So I think that that, that data showed me that that's, that's why that holds people back. Campaign culture historically is is not set up for disabled people. It is working day in and day out it is long hours it is it is just inaccessible in every sense of the every definition of that term it is inaccessible uh and that's why you don't see disabled people really working on campaigns in that way and and then in turn bringing that disability lens to the work and we sometimes see this critique i must say most often on twitter of you know there being a uh, a, a disabled political class, shall we say, or a or a a hierarchy of folks, as happens in any activist community, particularly on social media. How do you think we build a a more? How do you think we build a more effective disabling disabled organizing community or or movement from within? Like, are there are there certain concerns that you see as a disabled person? within the the sort of groups that end up, you know, in Washington or the, the people that get the headlines? Yeah, I mean, I say this as a cis straight white dude that like th- it is mostly cis straight white people that that lead in these spaces. And and even if they are in leadership positions, they're not giving opportunity to and centering the voices of multiply marginalized disabled folks, black and brown disabled folks, queer disabled folks like they're they, they're not they, those those opportunities are not open to people who are not white, cisgender, straight men, <laughs> typically. And that that's a problem. Um, and and I, I think that's why that's that's the majority of what you see in politics and nonprofit and is something I'm really concerned about as as someone who's, you know, a leader in in this work is there are there are plenty of me doing this work. And if I am going to do this work, which I am, like, how do I use my platform to give to make sure that others in leadership um, are representative of the like wide, diverse community that we have. So I think that we can do that um, as a as a community. Like we we need to talk about the issues that face our community, but we need to talk about how they impact black folks disproportionately, um, black disabled folks differently than white folks. Why do you think that that centering, that continued centering of, as you said, white, I sometimes say white, cis, straight, male, and stale, uh, referring to myself. Why do you think that that, that perpetuates? Um, I mean, it's it's the history of this country. It's we we have a, a country that is led by uh, cis straight white dudes. Um, but it is, I think, it makes disability more comfortable for non disabled people to see somebody like, and I, I hate to even bring them up because I don't think we we claim them, but you know, Madison Cawthorn or. Greg Abbott in positions of power. These are the people that 
they, they, they perpetuate an idea of disability that it's inspirational that, uh, and, and, and it, people feel comfortable when, when they see someone like Greg Abbott, I mean, that guy should not have won his gubernatorial race. He is a, he is a terrible human. Um, and, uh, people look at him and they and they see someone who makes them feel comfortable it looks like someone that they're used to seeing in positions of power and uh and unfortunately that's the kind of representation that our community typically sees uh, are are those those types of people and within our our you know within the disability justice world and within our community like that get, we push back against that but in the mainstream that's what you see, or you see kids with their parents on, you know, that's so there's lots of problematic representation, I think, in the mainstream around disability. And that that's, that's kind of why it hasn't broken through. Yeah, you bring up, you know, Cawthorn and, and Abbott. And one thing I'm always curious about is how, you know, as you said, we don't claim them within disability justice circles. But sometimes I think that that, um, that shies us away from, from, uh, from challenging those types of folks who are within maybe not disability justice work, but disability community more generally, because for every, if we can call Cawthorn and, and Abbott an outlier in terms of their, where they've gotten to, <laughs> um, there's, uh, there's, I would say thousands of disabled people who, you know, hundreds of thousands, possibly millions who, who wouldn't align with this sort of perfect construction of what disability justice, aspiring to the highest good of disability justice. You mentioned, you know, continuing to work in this work. Can you tell me a little bit about the the new nonprofit that you just announced? Yeah, sure. So um, I just launched New Disabled South. It's a 501c3 nonpartisan nonprofit organization um, working to advance disability justice and disability rights in the South. There is no disability justice or disability rights strategy regionally in the United States. There's uh, there's really no straight state strategy. There there are groups and organizations and advocates and activists doing lots of great work, but there's no there, there's no work being done at the regional level. Yeah. What's the closest you get to like independent living, the stuff that's like vaguely legislated just yep. because of, uh, oh, you would know the act name better than I would. Um, despite me doing a series where I interviewed a number of independent living uh, executive directors. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I would say that that's the closest that the independent living movement has made really incredible strides. But there's no one convening these folks together to uh, have a unified strategy, especially uh, when we think about policy and legislation that impacts disabled people. The South uh, is disproportionately impacted by policy choices in, in this country. We have the highest poverty rates in the South. And disabled people live in poverty at more than twice the rate of non-disabled people. Um, the vast majority of those are black and brown and other people of color. And we have really been in need of a regional approach to this work. So in talking to some friends and mentors over the past couple of years about how we do this, it it stood out to me that there were there were a few different needs. One was that convening table 
that coalition building. Um, the second was that organizing strategy and advocacy around a lot of this policy that happens because what we see from what, what, what we're seeing is, as an example, there are groups like the Heritage Foundation who wrote voting anti-voting legislation in a number of states across the country after the 2020 election. They wrote and introduced it and passed these these bills, which make it more difficult to vote. They are unified in their in their policy strategy. And then the d- disabled community is uh, is impacted by that. We need to be unified in how we approach policy advocacy and organizing. So that's the second piece. And then the third is the research and policy piece. There is there is very little research and data on the disability community when it comes to voting, for example, and when it comes to really so many issues. And especially at the state and local level, um, we need really good research and really good policy making and that that's the third piece is is uh is is funding and doing that research and finding policy solutions to a lot of those problems that disabled folks in the south are facing so um for right now we're starting with 13 states in the south um a lot of people have written to me in the last couple of days and said what about virginia and uh Virginia will be a state that we work in, but to start, we're starting in 13 states in the South. I, I saw one of those maps one time, you know, the maps that are like your favorite restaurants by state. But it was one of those where it says who believes they are part of the South. And it was one of the Midwestern states. In my memory, it was Ohio. And it was people saying, well, we're in the South. And I, <laughs> okay. Well, you know, if if you look at the census, States like Maryland are considered the South, according to the census. And there are a couple other states that that, you know, talk to anyone in the South and they'll they'll laugh. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I I was really basing this off of a few key issues that are facing our community and where the need really is in the South. And that that's where we're starting from. And we can expand from there. Probably not Ohio, but uh, we, can, we can always expand. <laughs> you mentioned being a 5013C. So. Lucky you, you get to be nonpartisan. How do you transition from sort of this heavily partisan, you know, supporting campaigns and the the sort of work that you've been doing, certainly since I've known of your work, to more of a, 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 you know, a less, well, a less partisan approach when it comes to running a a Southern nonprofit? Yeah, it's going to be an interesting transition for me. Um, What what I know is that... uh, we we can be rooted in progressive values and and advocate for for progressive for for work that is that aligns with our values and be nonpartisan we can hold elected officials account, accountable regardless of party and advocate in that way in the future i could see doing some expanding to do some 501c4 work uh, but for now, starting in the nonpartisan space, I think is a really important introduction in, into this kind of organizing in the South, because really it is not just conservatives, it's not just one political party that fails our community. It is both slash all that that more frequently than not fail our community. The fact that the Abrams campaign was the first to do so many of the things that we did in political on political campaigns is is both amazing and kind of sad. You mean that, in terms of disability or or broader than that? 
in terms of disability, we we had full-time American Sign Language interpreters on staff. We had a really comprehensive disability rights policy platform that made really huge, unprecedented investments into in the Georgia disability community. Um, we hired deaf and disabled staff across departments, a concerted effort to hire deaf and disabled staff. I mean, there we had a whole department. Um, there were there were eight people in my department um, by the time the campaign ended, working full time on disability issues. Like that's never been done before in that way on a political campaign, let alone a statewide campaign. So that that's not just one party. That's that's across politics, and I think we can demand better of our elected officials and those in power, regardless of the the party. And I'm I am very much looking forward to to being able to do that. And I know uh, you mentioned um, uh, Mia earlier. Uh, I noticed that uh, she is, let me just get to it on the page here, because I was on the other page. Um, you have Mia as, as your chair. Can you tell me a little bit about how you're thinking in terms of um, Mia, if, if listeners don't know, huge disability advocate, talks a lot about um, transracial adoptee issues. Um, and a, a number of other things. Also, a, a former Parasport athlete, I believe. Yay, go team. <laughs> uh, can you tell me a little bit about how you're thinking of, of branching out that leadership team? And obviously, I, I, I'm only aware of, of what's on the website. So perhaps there are others whose bios have not have not made it there yet that you want to brag up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I, it was... Uh, I, it was kind of a no-brainer to ask Mia to be on the board. Um, I wanted to have somebody who is rooted in the South. Um, she grew up in North Carolina, who un- clearly has lived experience of disability and can be in a leadership role like that. So asking her to chair the board was kind of a no-brainer for me. And I wanted to make sure that our, the board looks like our community. And that's racially, that's, um, that isn't, that is in regard to gender identity, sexual orientation. Like I, I, I want to make sure that that our board looks like our community, especially in the South. And so there are a couple other board members that I'm uh, working on onboarding. One is Nor Nor Pervez, who's a autistic trans disability justice advocate, uh, who's from Texas originally. I've got a few other people that I'm working on um, joining the board. And Mia and I met last night to kind of work through how we're gonna build this board. And then in terms of staffing, I, uh, my first hire will be a, a COO, a chief operating officer who I worked with on the campaign, who is a black woman and, uh, and identifies as having a disability and has helped many nonprofits start, start up who I just trust with like my life. And we've become quite good friends. So, and then from there, we're going to be hiring more roles in the new year. And I'm excited to be able to like start doing that. Um, but for now, it's it's me, full-time staff, bringing on another staffer, and then kind of building the board out from where we have with, where we're starting with Mia. Got it. And where does the, uh, the, the endless nonprofit question, I was in nonprofit and still sometimes work in nonprofit before journalism. Where, where does the money come from, Dom? Um, the money comes from very supportive people who in the last two days have donated five bucks, 10 bucks, 25 bucks, 50 bucks, one time in monthly contributions. Um, that stuff is 
so helpful. And I really want to build a, a really awesome grassroots community of donors. Um, that's something that we really valued on the campaign and when I was at Fair Fight and I want to be able to build a community like that. And we have funding com- uh, coming in from a couple of a couple of foundations that uh, I'll be able to talk about soon. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. You know, with your work on this organization, what I'm curious about, you know, you just came off this very, uh, you know, I'm reading between the lines here. I don't think we talked about it, but, but uh, stressful campaign. I don't think any campaign is not stressful. You know, you mentioned the get out the vote work that you did in October. You know, you've been, you've been, you know, jumping from, from, I would say activist circle to activist circle doing this work for for quite a while. And now you've started this nonprofit. From the perspective of sort of crip time or or disabled time, where do you find time to rest? And how do you sort of cultivate, you know, this is somebody with CP talking to another person with CP. Like I'm I'm I think I'm fair to make the guess that like both of our, our versions of our disability like have um some rampant energy effects. Like how do you how do you make this to connect it to the name of our podcast? How do you cultivate rest in order to still push this movement forward without the burnout that is sort of um, intricately connected to to nonprofit and political work? Yeah, I've really I have struggled with rest the last few months in particular. It has been pretty much go, go, go all the time. I am right now trying to figure out how I slow down after being on overdrive um for so long because i i'm actually really i'm really fired up about this work and we've got so much momentum coming out of the campaign and so much momentum now going into this nonprofit but like i i know i have to slow down and for for me it's it's now i need to go back and learn how to set boundaries around work like this is my start time this is my end time one of the things my COO and I are working on is what what does our work culture look like? And like I want to have a four-day work week for for my staff. Like that's really important. That is that aligns with disability justice principles, uh, that it is not about productivity. And we can do good work in a four-day work week. I know that. So I I also want to I also want to even even it would be easy to implement that and then not practice it myself. I want to practice it myself. My wife is pregnant right now, so I know I'm gonna, you know, have that that change coming uh, really soon, and want to be able to to have the time for my family. So it's like setting boundaries around work. One of the things I found that's hardest for me with that though is when your work is tied to your identity. It's like you can't shut it off, and I've really struggled with that. So. But for me, it's like really saying, okay, on my calendar, here's my work time, start and end time. And when when my end time comes, I shut it off. I turn off the computer and I go chill with my wife and watch TV or whatever, like have dinner like that. That's what I've had to do. And I've noticed that my body will tell me if I don't do that because I can barely walk or uh, or my my back is, you know, in so much pain or whatever is happening, like physically, I can feel it. So I, I've found myself getting to that point lately. And if and if I need to, like, stop it before I get to that point. 
yeah, I certainly hear you on the on the the connection to identity of not being able not being able to uh, not being able to shut it off because it sometimes it can it's almost like an inward version of the scarcity mindset of like. If I don't do it, it's not going to get done. And then I failed my community. And whoa, 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 hang on. Like, you know, as you said, uh, disability movement need to have, you know, a, a more conscious relationship to energy because that's how we see, that's how we exist within burnout. And certainly on, I think, certainly on social media, be curious yeah. what your thoughts, but certainly on social media where you can plug into you know, at one point I was calling Twitter trauma central. Not that that's a bad thing, but it's like because that's where people go to share. And you know, I wrote, I got to interview some a few folks about like creating safe spaces on social media. But it's also like when you can plug into the inequity in the world with a click, <laughs> it's, uh, it's it's hard to it's hard to turn that off. And I've certainly noticed in media that, I mean, we won't turn this into like me, John blabbers about media, but certainly in media, there's, there's some places that will shift to a, a four day work week, but then sometimes they don't think about how that connects to people like outside of their newsroom. So they like, don't increase the capacity to deal with these other things. So they're just piling five days of work into four. They're not actually, I, this is not unique to media. I've just, I've just seen it happen in media. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see, you know, going back to new disabled South, you know, one of the, one of the people that I, I listen to quite a bit about issues in the South is, is the writer from Kentucky, Rainsford Stouffer, who wrote An Ordinary Age. And Rainsford talks, tweets quite often about how, you know, there's, there's some serious misconceptions about about Kentuckians, I believe that's the term for folks from Kentucky. I love U.S. state uh, place. Floridians uh, here, and I'm in Saskatchewan, uh, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada. Saskatchewan or Saskatchewanians. Uh, it's all fun, but anyway, Rainsford uh, talks quite often around political cycles. A wonderful journalist about how there are these misconceptions about the South. So I'm curious, what are the misconceptions that you see? about the disabled self yeah there it's it's a lot of the same misconceptions that there are about the south in general but i think that when we're talking about elections a lot of times here when things happen like what happened here in georgia when said stacy did not win her election or better or work didn't win his election you see people from other states you know say they should you know, they should just secede or something like that because because the these the people in these states are you know whatever they're and and the, you they can they can cast these ideas about what the people who live there and really what the reality is is you have all sorts of different people who are living in these states many of whom are black and brown folks disabled folks who have been disenfranchised who have had their ability to vote freely and fairly taken away from them. So whether or not they wanted to vote sometimes uh, for historically, they haven't been able to in the same way. So you're seeing people continue to be in leadership because oftentimes a lot of these folks votes are suppressed. And I think that's a misconception of the disability community 
we don't have enough data to to know how the disability community gets gets out and votes outside of like just you know a presidential year when we can get a little bit of data but but a lot of people don't have rides to polls they they don't necessarily want Brian Kemp to be their governor but they don't have a way to to get out to vote they the their ability to vote by mail has been severely trampled on and severely limited and that's that's across marginalized groups in the south so you have people here who want progress and believe in it but they haven't been given the opportunity and whether that's a misconception or just people from outside uh making assumptions about what happens in southern states i think it's important to remember that there are people who want progress who want change who simply can't and have not been afforded the opportunity to be a part of the process and that there are more of there are more of us there are more of me people of like mind than there are who uh who want progress to be halted and unfortunately our history of systemic racism in the south and jim crow and segregation and institutionalization of disabled people and you know all of those issues are still still impacting people in the south today yeah you mentioned the history i'm always interested now of course i am in canada so that that includes some caveats but i'm always interested in how particularly in north america i think i mean i am also british i think the brits have done a slightly better job but I, I I can't shake this feeling that disability history sucks at being like we suck at recording it. Not only do non-disabled people suck at recording it, but because of the nature of oppression of disabled people, we either weren't given the opportunity at certain points or we're starting to build back that history. You know, even within the disability history that we do, not that it isn't recorded. I mean, a lot of things are in books and things, but things that are often brought up and, and talked about. I can't shake the feeling that that the South is underrepresented in those conversations that I see. I mean, I'm thinking even of the fact that, you know, two of the biggest, again, this won't slowly devolve into John just talks about Parasport for an hour. But, <laughs> you know, two of the biggest training centers for disabled athletes at the moment are at University of Texas Arlington and the Lakeshore Foundation in Birmingham, Alabama. The University of Alabama just built like a multi-million dollar wheelchair tennis facility. And I can't think of um, one, uh, um, I'm forgetting uh, Morgan Hill. Yes. Her name, she was an athlete. I believe she's married now. So apologies, Morgan, for, for not having your uh, your uh, hyphenated name in my head. But, but uh, Morgan played at, at UCA and, and started a program at uh, in Tennessee, where, where she's from. And uh, like, I see these things, but I see these things because I know these people or they have crossed my path in various ways. And, and you know, it, it's interesting to see, it, you know, as you said, the new disabled South, as opposed to, I guess that asks the question of what the old disabled South is. I think we suffer as a community from, like you said, a, a lack of like, keeping archives and uh knowing our history i think it's why crip camp was like so revolutionary for so many people because they they didn't they didn't learn about that you don't learn about what judy human did in most history textbooks you might learn about the ada a little bit 
but you don't learn about the the years and years that were put into that and the people who are at the forefront of it. Or you like, I'm thinking of uh, like, I hear about, uh, you, you mentioned Rebecca earlier. I hear about um, uh, historical figures with dwarfism from Rebecca. I don't, mostly, not, you know, Rebecca, Tom Shakespeare, uh, Eugene Grant, maybe some, I, I believe. Um, you know, I, I, I hear it from people who, who understand their, you know, if we we're going to niche it down right there, their community figures, I'm currently blanking on what those might be with CP at this present moment. This is why I'm not a historian, but um, yeah, it's that, that, that niching down of hearing it because people happen to know, not because that knowledge has sort of escaped the 50 people that know about it. That That's right. Yeah. And I think that people have been so reluctant to one identify as disabled or having a disability and to even using the word disability for so long. Uh, and people see disability in one way, you know, they, they see that, that view of disability, uh, in a commercial where someone has a prosthetic and they're running, you know, and it's inspirational and they cross the finish line. Um, or they see a young person with down syndrome being, getting a fucking promposal, you know, a viral on the internet. Like that, that's how people have historically seen disability and that does not open the door for people to talk about their own disabilities or be willing to accept our history of disability especially from a political perspective and so i think when we look at the history of the south like there's also so much there's so much shameful history here there's so much um within our history of our our legacy of slavery our legacy of segregation, our eugenicist history in this country, and particularly in the South, like there's so much around that, that I think disability got lost there because people were ashamed to talk about it. People didn't know how to talk about it and people still don't know how to talk about disabilities. So I think the new disabled South is saying like, there are plenty of issues that are disproportionately impacting our community. And we we need to come together and talk about them and fight back because it's it's time and people are people are hurting. And how do we talk about that history and at the same time move move forward? And that that's that's what I think my goal with this work is. Hello, puppy. Uh, mine are out of not that it doesn't matter that yours came into shop. Mine are happily. They keep stealing each other's bed in this room for whatever reason. There are three beds and three chairs in my little home office. So, yeah. Um, Thanks so much, Dom. So uh, uh, Andy and I every week have a, a Crip of the Week. Um, and I, I modeled this after um, uh, Grace Helbig's podcast, where she has a number of questions that she asks, including who alive or dead would you like to throw cold spaghetti at? But since I can't beat that question who is your uh crip of the week i have two if that's okay um absolutely guest guests honor you get to you can have as many as you want uh 
so they were both on my team on the Abrams campaign. Um, Sonia Rio Glick and Hidra Hamid. They, uh, Sonia was on the, they're both on the disability engagement and accessibility team. Um, Sonia has CP. Hidra has um, their own disability identity, was our staff ASL interpreter. Um, and our disability engagement accessibility manager. And they're both phenomenal advocates and uh, doing incredible work here in Georgia. And I think they both have like extremely cool stuff ahead of them in their careers and um, are doing amazing work. So they are my Crips of the week. And I would be, I would have been lost uh, in the work without them by my side. So I have to shout them out. Thanks so much, Don. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Today's sponsor is Kitcaster. Did you know that podcasts are a great way to grow your personal and business brand voice? Here's a secret. We all want to feel connected to the brands we buy from. And what better way to humanize a brand than through sharing your story on a podcast? Kitcaster is a podcast booking agency that specializes in developing real human connections through podcast appearances. If you're an expert in your field, have a unique story to share, or an interesting point of view, it's time you explore the world of podcasting with Kitcaster. You can expect a completely customized concierge service from the staff of communication experts. Kitcaster is your secret weapon in the podcasting business. Your audience is waiting to hear from you. Go to kitcaster.com backslash dismove, etc. to apply for a special offer for the friends and listeners of this particular podcast. Let's get to Crip of the Week. Who do you have? I have a group of people. Um, because one of the things that we know we were talking about disclosure earlier in the preamble to before I talked to Dom, uh, that there is, uh, there is an inability to disclose, um, within, uh, within a lot of disability circles. And I think that is particularly true when it comes to political cycles. So I promise I will. I promise I will shut up about the American political system. Lord knows the world does not need more Canadians commenting like they know things. Yeah, However, we don't need my, more Americans my, doing it either. Uh, uh, but my my crip of the week goes to the disabled political organizers who yes. who can't disclose, who are come forward or have seen themselves in 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 people like Fetterman previously, uh, you know, people like Tammy Duckworth, the people who continue to work for these things, you know, there are people who are out there who are, are publicly, you know, bringing forward this work. I mean, um, interviewed a few for the piece of Alex and I, Alex Green and I did with Teen Vogue, but also folks like uh, Andrew Pullrang and the group behind uh, hashtag CryptoVote. That's Alice Wong and uh, Greg Baratan. Those are my crips of the week, the sort of the, the people who see themselves as being disabled, but maybe can't quite yet come forward and bring forward those candidacies like we've been able to see some people do, uh, you and New in New York and uh, Lydia X.C. Brown as well. I think that's a great one. And I mean, shout out to all those people doing the hard, good work of keeping your organization accountable 
for disabled people. It's so needed and there's not enough recognition to go around. I went with somebody specific this week and that is because this person absolutely smashed a record and that was Stefan Nero who's an Australian blind cricketer and which was news to me I didn't I didn't know they had an entire blind cricket league you know I know a lot about beat baseball in the US cuz of course we play baseball in the US and not cricket uh and it was interesting to see I was of course doing some work before the podcast and looking and, and following some of his games it was interesting to see the diversion between blind cricket and beat baseball in the US, um, particularly around the idea of masks and that kind of stuff. And maybe we can talk about this some other time because I don't want to take away from the fact that Stefan Nero, who started playing not too long ago, recently scored 309 runs in his cricket match, which literally smashed the old record, which was 222 runs. And it's just like that, that to me in and of itself was just a tremendous athletic feat. But what I thought was really, really cool was in the interview that I had found that was on CNN, and we can post a link for this, but he talked a lot about how sport really helped him to find a community, to find folks who were like himself. He had, he acquired a lot of his visual impairments he was mentioning when it was sort of first happening, he was really isolated and uh, in sport and he's plays more than just cricket. He's done a whole bunch of other um, disability or disabled sports, adapted sports, wherever we're at. But yeah, he's just, he's my crip of the week because absolutely smashed it. And I don't know much about cricket, but I know 309 runs is a, a whole lot of runs. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, only, only, only the Brit, speaking of my heritage, could come up with a game that lasts for a week and can still end in a tie. Yeah, and you have tea breaks, right? Like they stop for tea. <laughs> the only, I mean, rugby's the only other sport I know that has such a sort of laissez-faire attitude to the entire game and match, other than a rugby match, simply going oh, for 80 I'm, minutes. I'm wheelchair rugby has been known to do it as well. I've been at a number of tournaments where you can go straight off the end of the court and go directly into the bar. Certainly, I won't name those tournaments for the sake of the organizers, but you know who you are. They know who they are, yeah. Um, yeah, one, one thing that, you know, you, you sent across this article from, from CNN, and, and one of the things that really stood out to me is that in 2017, I'm quoting here, in 2017, he, uh, meaning Nero, benefited from the tutelage of Pakistan's coaches who were flown to Australia to coach batting technique as he attempted to, quote, replicate players from the two top countries in the world, India and Pakistan. I think that's really interesting because in disabled sports circles, certainly that I run in, you, you tend to hear about the the standards, um, much like in 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 non-disabled sport uh, or um, AO sport, where you hear of uh, you know you only really only the diehards care about gymnastics. The other three are side of the cycle. Um, there are still a hot, large number of diehards, but you know for for a lot of people, it only comes up on their radar. I would say for me, as somebody who covers, covers para sport, I certainly know less about blind sport. 
and, and but over and above that, you know, it, with this um, speaking about India and Pakistan, you know, more recently, additionally, I guess you could say, uh, the Middle East and Asia have been a stronger player in in sports like sitting volleyball. Like it's interesting when we're talking about these sports not from a Western lens because so often, especially in wheelchair basketball, wheelchair rugby, we zero in on. Oh yeah. The Americas, Europe. I can't think of the podium right now. Yeah, Australia, New Zealand. You tend to see, you know, one might come up on the radar occasionally. You know, you might see, you know, Turkey have a really good wheelchair basketball result, uh, for example. Um, or it might come across as a, a good social story. Uh, there was one, uh, I can't remember if it was Rio or Tokyo. Uh, with the first to the knowledge of the article that I was reading at that time, because who knows, uh, we don't have a lot of good disability. Well, we have some, but we don't have like an extensive history written of disabled sport. I don't think, um, you know, first uh, yeah, hijabi team, entirely, yeah. exactly the first entirely hijabi team at the Paralympics. Like we get these offshoots, but um, I really appreciated this sort of, nod and understanding of of cricket as a, as a truly as a truly global game and that it extends to the the disabled uh the disabled sport version or one of the disabled sport versions because i imagine we could also find amputee cricket and wheelchair cricket just like you can find um uh was it bleep baseball What's mm -hmm. it called? Beep, beep baseball. Beep baseball. There you go. Yeah. Uh, beep baseball. And you can also find things like wheelchair softball. Mm hmm. And it's awesome. interesting, too, that those two come from India and Pakistan who don't have the greatest records surrounding human rights or civil rights of disabled populations in their own countries. Not that the U.S. does a whole ton better <laughs> in many instances, but, you know, it's. It's great to see that that sport exists in places that we know there are many more barriers than that might be in, in more Western societies, too. Well, when it's coming from where the sport has has massive, massive popularity, um, for example, the, the, you know. No, I'm not going to go there because I would end up on another diatribe and you don't need that. I was going to say, just like your context is uh, be, uh, baseball. baseball. Yeah, uh, like we have blind hockey up here. Not that you guys don't. I'm sure there's lots in the Midwest. Yeah, definitely a lot more in the Midwest down here in good old sunny Texas. That's good. Well, John, it's been another good conversation. Hopefully people That's have nice. enjoyed Always fun. I'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Absolutely. See you then. See ya. Disability Movement Etc. is a Blank Owl production. You can find out more about what we're doing, including past episodes, show notes, and transcripts at blankowl.com. The music for this episode was composed by Adrian Doc Blust. If you'd like to support our efforts with Blank Owl, head over to support.blankowl.com. I hope you all join us next time. <laughs>